This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Well, good morning. It's so great to have you with us today, Uh, whether you're tuning in from a church at home group or you're joining as a visitor. My name's James. I'm one of the pastors and a church planting resident here at Anchor. And uh, I'm excited to get into the word today. So why don't you join me and let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, pray in this time, Lord, that um, you would still our hearts and our minds. Uh, However, we come to you this morning, Lord, with um, anxieties through the busyness of the week. Um, However we are this morning, we pray that in this moment we would hear your voice. And so please still our hearts, open our ears, Lord, open our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us. We ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, my name is James, and I'm excited to be continuing our series, Sell Our Songs in the Waiting. And today I have the privilege of preaching to you and bringing us a message on Psalm 19, a psalm which C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis, who we love uh, from, you know, Narnia, one of the great Christian writers and philosophers and thinkers of our time, he said about Psalm 19 that, It's his favorite poem in all of the Psalms. He thinks Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in all of the Psalms. And not only that, he believes that Psalm 19 is the greatest lyric in the world. That's what C.S. Lewis said about it. And so I have the privilege of unpacking this Psalm for us this morning. And I've chosen to call this message, Do You Know the Redeemer? Do You Know the Redeemer? And as we... As we work our way through this psalm, we're going to see that God speaks to us. He reveals himself through creation. Uh, He reveals himself through his word. He wants to speak to us through his word and ultimately as our redeemer. And so, you know, the purpose of this series, Sell Our Songs in the Waiting, is we're looking at these different psalms, these different songs throughout this time of pandemic, this time of waiting, uh, this time of agitation and anxiety and uncertainty. And these Psalms are are here to give a voice 
and an expression to the emotions that we feel, to our prayers, to our faith. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 19, the question is, do you know the Redeemer? And that's a great question to ask because the truth is there's never a bad time to assess your faith. There's never a bad time to examine where you stand with God, whether you're someone who has been a Christian, you know, your whole life, or maybe for a few years, or maybe you don't even know what this whole Jesus thing is all about. There's never a bad time to examine your faith. And so let's start Psalm 19, chapter 1. If you have a Bible there, pick it up. This text is beautiful. We're going to be spending a lot of time just reading through these words. So I encourage you, have your Bible open in front of you. And I'm going to read for us from this first section. So this is Psalm 19, a psalm written by David, and it starts in verse 1 with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. I wonder if you've ever had this moment where you've looked out at creation in its beauty, in its magnificence, in its creativity, and you've just experienced the glory of God. You know, a couple of years ago, back in 2016, I had the privilege of traveling to the United States with three of my buddies, and uh, we embarked to the States, and we spent a day in Los Angeles, well, more than one day, but one of our days in Los Angeles, we spent the day at Venice Beach. And in the afternoon, we made our way, walked over to Santa Monica, over to Santa Monica Pier for the sunset, just in time. And we saw the most incredible sunset, still to this date, the fa my favorite sunset that I've ever seen. I think we've got a photo on the screen. It was incredible. Just these beautiful colors, these incredible hues of blue and pink and yellow and purple, just sprawled out across the vastness of the sky, making this incredibly beautiful tapestry. I wonder if you've had that moment. We've looked out at the sunset, or maybe during dusk, or maybe you've looked out at the vastness of the ocean, or you've looked up at the grandeur of the mountains. And in that moment, you have just thought to yourself, wow, isn't God amazing? And you experience in that moment his glory. You hear in that moment his voice. Even though the skies aren't actually saying anything, as, as the psalmist says. Even though they have no speech, verse 3. Even though they use no words and no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. They speak wonders of God's glory, even in their audible silence. And then the psalmist goes on in verse 5. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And so here, the psalmist David is talking about 
the majesty and the brilliance of the sun. And even as majestic and brilliant as the sun is, this incredible force which gives warmth to all living things, which gives gives life, you know, whole planets and ecosystems rely on the sun to sustain them. And yet even despite the brilliance and glory of the sun, God is greater. Why? Because he made the sun. He made the sun. He set it in its place. Like it says there at the end of verse 4, in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. And so David, he's talking here about the sky and he's saying, not only has God made the sun, but he's made the sky like this beautiful tent for the sun. And each day, you know, we experience the sun rising and we see the sun setting in its place. It gives warmth to all things. And even this God has made. And so we see from these first six verses, God's glory is revealed through creation. And the question is, do you know this God? Do you know this creator? But David doesn't finish just there. He's not content with us just to know about God through creation. He goes on to talk about God's word. Read with me, starting in verse 7. And actually for this one, I'm going to just read from the ESV translation because I think it's just a little bit more intuitive and it, we can make sense of it a little bit more easily just by reading it. And so in the ESV, David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And so in the context of this passage, uh, you might be wondering, what is, what's David actually talking about when he says, you know, the law of the Lord or the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord? And the scholars have written on this and they've kind of agreed that in this context, all of these different terms that David uses are the same thing. He's using them interchangeably to mean the whole doctrine of God. Or as we might put it a little bit more easily to understand, the whole word of God. And so it definitely includes God's laws and his commands and, you know, the Ten Commandments and the law that we see in the Old Testament. But it's also more than that. It's all of God's word, which is in view here. And have a look with me at those descriptors. Those describing words that David uses to describe God's word. Have a look with me there. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It's not lacking anything. It's not incomplete. It's not with fault. It's perfect. And not only that, but it is sure. It is right in verse eight. It is pure. It is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. Wow. 
Isn't that amazing? Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. This is how David describes the Word of God. And I wonder, is that how you describe the Word of God? And not only that, but look at not just the descriptors of the Word of God, but look at the result of the Word of God. Look at the consequence, the things that David says will happen when we read and study, and most importantly, when we listen to and apply the Word of God. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, literally giving life to our souls. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, giving us wisdom. Isn't that what we all want? You know, wisdom, as defined in the Bible, is simply about knowing how to live well. And isn't that what we all want in this day and age? We want to live our best life. You know, hashtag living my best life now. That's what we all want. And to do that, we need wisdom. But not only that, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, bringing joy to the heart. Isn't that what we want? That state of joy that we want to live in. Not only that, but the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, giving us perspective, helping us to see clearly, see ourselves and the world around us and our lives with the right perspective, as we want to, with discernment. And not only that, but the word of God, it's enduring forever and it is righteous altogether. Wow. Isn't that just an amazing way of describing the word of God? And my question for for all of us this morning is, is that how we see God's word? You know, do, do we... Do we think about God's word and we think, man, it is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean? Or do we think, oh, it's a bit outdated, a little bit boring. I feel like on some of its ethics, maybe it's a bit irrelevant. I don't know if it's all really God's word. Is is that what you think? What is your view of God's word? And you know, so often I think in our culture, in our time, For our generations, the temptation is is to take this word of God, which David describes as perfect and right and sure and life-giving and soul-refreshing, and we take it from up here, you know, where it deserves to be, where it truly is in its perfection and its authority, and we lower it down here. We just treat it like it's any other opinion any other advice, any other perspective. And not only that, we elevate the other voices in our lives. We take the voices of our culture, of social media, of our friends, of popular opinion, of Twitter, and we elevate these voices to the same level as God's word, sometimes even higher. And so... As we, as we wonder, as we marvel at God's word this morning, there's two questions that I want us all to reflect upon. And these are questions that I've been reflecting upon myself this week as I've been preparing to teach this passage. And the first question is this, do we understand that God's word is life-giving? I mean, do we understand, and, and not just understand, but do we truly believe that God's word is life-giving? 
You see, when I am driving somewhere that I am unfamiliar with, I always use Google Maps. I even have to use it sometimes when I'm going to places that I am familiar with because my visual memory is just so bad. I just cannot recall all the different turns and things I should be familiar with. And so what do I do? I get in the car, I plug in the address in Google Maps, pull out of my driveway, I hit that blue button that says start or begin or whatever that says. And, um, you know, we all do this when we're trying to go somewhere that we're unfamiliar with. And so I pull out of my driveway, I hit start, and what happens? Well, I have this friendly Google woman who, you know, she is a stranger to me, I don't actually know her, but I trust her, and she starts to give me instructions. And so when she says, in 100 meters, turn left, I turn left. And when she says, in 100 meters, turn right, I turn right. And when I come up to the roundabout and she says, at the roundabout, take the third exit. I take the third exit. Why? Why do I do that? Because I know she has the directions for where I need to go. I listen to her voice in that moment because I trust and I know she knows where I want to go. She knows where I want to get to. And so I listen to her voice and I heed her instructions. But so often in life, we fail to listen to God's voice, even though he has the instructions that are going to help us get to where we need to go. Even though he knows the directions, we choose not to listen to his voice. And so when he tells us to take a left, we take a right. And when he tells us to take a right, we think, oh, maybe I, maybe I ought to chuck a left. And when he says take the third exit at the roundabout, we just drive straight through. Isn't this what so many of us do? But here is the truth of the matter, guys. The truth is that we cannot expect to experience the abundant life of God if we refuse to listen to his voice. We simply cannot expect to experience the abundant life of God if we refuse to listen to his voice. Oh, but... But all my friends say that, you know, sex before marriage is fine. Well, great. What does God's word say? Did your friends invent sex? Because I know who did. God did. And he knows the best context for us to express our sexuality so that our sexual expression doesn't hurt us, so that there's no danger involved, so that we won't experience guilt or shame or the pain of heartbreak, but so that we can experience sexuality in all of its fullness and beauty as a gift. Oh, well, all of my colleagues gossip at work and talk badly about people behind their backs. Well, great. Do all of your colleagues know Jesus? Do all of your colleagues have the peace and the contentment and the joy just overflowing from their lives that you want? Because if they don't, why would you follow their example, knowing that example leads to outcome? Well, everybody else is doing it, and these people think it's okay, and this is what culture says, and Christianity's opinion's unpopular. It always has been. But God's word is the way for us to flourish. You see, in John 10, chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come to give them life, and life abundantly. And while, yes, that does mean 
eternal life with God forever, that eternal abundant life starts now. You can actually experience the blessings of God and the fruit that comes from living his way now. You don't have to be content living in guilt or shame or anxiety or sin. No, you actually are in control. You can make choices and choose to live God's way and experience that abundant life now. Because God's word, his commandments, his laws, the things that he tells us, his instructions that he gives us, they're not arbitrary rules with no purpose behind them. They're not outdated commands that he's given to restrict our lives and to you know, shrink our freedoms and limit us. No, they're parameters which he's lovingly put in place so that we can flourish. Just like any good and loving parent puts parameters in place so their children can flourish and experience life to the full, so too does God do that for us through his word. But we have to choose to listen to his voice. And the second question that I want us all to reflect upon this morning in regards to God's word is does our relationship with God's word reflect how precious and valuable it is? Does our relationship with God's word reflect how precious and valuable it is? Because have a look there at verse 10 at how God's word is described. It says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That's crazy. More to be desired than gold? And sweeter than honey, like not that processed, crappy, like part syrup honey, like legit raw honey straight from the honeycomb. That's how sweet and precious God's word is. You know, back in 2016, when I proposed to Katie, I bought an engagement ring. And it was the most expensive single purchase that I have made, I had made in my life to that point. And as I went into the city on that fateful Thursday evening to pick it up two days before I proposed on June the 8th, 2016, I was anxiety ridden. And I was certain that for the first and only time in my life, this was the night that I was going to get mugged. This was the night. And so I went to the jeweler, I picked it up and they gave me this beautiful ring, rose gold. You can ask her to see it. And um, they put it in this beautiful little ornate case, which then went inside a smaller little gift bag, which then went inside a larger company bag from the, from, from the jeweler, which I then put in my backpack. So we're talking four layers of protection here, right? Case, small bag, bigger bag, backpack. And I got on the train and for that 40 minute train ride from town hall to where I was living at the time, I was on edge. And so I didn't even sit downstairs or upstairs. Like I got on the carriage and I sat in that, you know, in that section near the entrance where you can see the people sitting opposite from you. And you know why I did that? I did that because it gave me a good vantage point so I could see everyone coming in and out of the carriage. You know, I was on alert for potential muggers or robbers. And I was like, I can see everyone coming in around. So they look suspicious. 
stay away from my stuff, you know? And I kid you not, for 40 minutes, I think I opened up my bag to check that the ring was still there six times. Even though my backpack was just sitting on my lap, I unzipped my backpack, looked in the bigger bag, looked in the smaller bag, looked in the case, four layers of protection. That ring was not going anywhere, but I was, I was so scared that it wouldn't be there because it was so valuable to me. It was so precious. So I just, I couldn't help but just keep checking that it was there. And that's what you do when something is so valuable and precious to you. You know, this is the kind of attitude, this is the kind of the way that you treat it. And do we do that with the word of God? Is it valuable and precious to us? And I suspect for many of us, we don't treat it with that kind of value that it deserves. And, you know, maybe you're listening to this and you, you're thinking, oh, man, like, I just don't treat God's word like I ought to. I don't see it as precious or valuable and I don't listen to it. I don't listen to God's voice. You know, I turn left when I should be turning right. Uh, I'm just. But the good news is you can actually change that. You can actually change that because you are you have the power to change your behavior and to change your attitude. You have the ability to treat God's word differently, to repent as the Bible puts it, and to start to invest in the word of God, in the life-giving word of God. And so you don't have to wait and kind of, you know, oh, I just don't really feel like I'm, I can change, but I'll pray to God and if he changes my mind and stuff and he makes me do it, then I'll totally, no, you can actually change. He's given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to change. And so you can make that decision today to re-elevate God's word to the place that it deserves, where its worth is, and to invest in it, to read it, to study it, to apply it to your life. You can do that. But the psalmist doesn't finish there. He continues. And we're back in the NIV translation now. And he says, but, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And then finally, verse 14, the prayer which ties this whole thing together. He says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord my rock and my redeemer. And so what is David doing here? What's he doing with these verses? Well, the first thing he's doing is he's showing us that all of us are susceptible to sin. Even the one who listens and who loves God's word and who seeks to apply it to their life, even that person with the right attitude and the repentant heart, even that person is still susceptible and prone to sin. All of us are broken and imperfect. And we sin both in, in ways which we don't know. See there in verse 12, he says, forgive my, my hidden faults, these sins that I commit unknowingly. But also in verse, at the end of um, 
In verse 13, he says, Keep your servant also from willful sins, sins that I do deliberately. You know, we all have those moments where we know what we ought to do, but we choose not to do it. Oh, I, I, don't, I know I shouldn't have another drink. I've had too much already. Uh, whatever, like Saturday night, let's just do it. Or, oh man, it's getting late. I should probably go home. It's probably too late for me to be hanging out at this person's house. But, oh man, I just, I just want to, or, you know, I know I shouldn't be looking at this thing on the internet, but oh, you know, there's no one here. I can always ask for forgiveness later, right? We all, we get it. We have those moments. All of us are susceptible to sin, whether unknowingly or willfully. And that's what David is saying here. All of us are imperfect. And yet despite that, look at how David finishes this psalm. Verse 14, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Who? Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, David calls the Lord his rock and his redeemer because he knows who he is praying to. He knows who he's directing this psalm to. He knows that God is the one who can redeem him from his sins. Even though he's imperfect, even though he's got mess in his life, God is the one who can cover those things. And so this is not, you know, these verses are not just an admission of, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm sinful, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, maybe I'll try better next time. No, in these verses... David recognizes who God is and he asks him for help. See that in verse 12? He says, forgive my hidden faults. He's not content just to be like, oh Lord, you know, I stuffed up or whatever. No, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for what I have done, even the things I don't know. And in verse 13, keep your servant also from willful sins. Lord, I know that I do what I don't want to do. But I'm not okay with that. I know that I sin when I shouldn't and, you know, I take the wrong direction and I do the wrong thing. But I'm not content just letting that stay in my life. No, I'm asking you to help me because I know that you can keep me from these willful sins, Lord. See, this is a prayer of repentance. This is a prayer of acknowledgement that even in our sin, even in our brokenness, there is one who can keep us from falling. There is one who can keep us from stumbling. There is one who we can call our rock and our redeemer. You know, one in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus is described as this precious lamb who has redeemed us by his blood. Jesus is the one who went to the cross and he died in our place for all of our sin and all of our mess and all of our brokenness. And it's through Jesus's blood shed on the cross that we have redemption, that we can be forgiven, cleansed, made whole, free. And so the question for us this morning, as we close, the question that all of this hinges on that ties together this whole psalm is, is this. Is that prayer in verse 14, is that your prayer? Is that prayer that David 
praise the posture of your heart. That though you are susceptible to sin, that though you are broken and messy, you acknowledge God as your rock and your redeemer, and you ask him to help you live a godly and holy life. Is that your prayer? And maybe that's not your prayer this morning, and you don't know Jesus. And we want to invite you, come to know the rock and the redeemer. Come to know the one whom the heavens declare glorious. Come to know the one whose word can give life to your soul. And so if that's you, I invite you this morning, come to put your trust in Jesus. You can do that by praying a simple prayer this morning. Just talking to God and saying, Lord, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm a sinner. But please forgive me. And thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. You can pray a simple prayer like that this morning. And if that is you, I'd encourage you, please click on that button that says request prayer. One of our team members would love to talk to you and chat to you and help you take those next steps. But I suspect for many of us, we are Christians and we are those who believe Jesus is our redeemer. But perhaps we have just stumbled a bit. Perhaps we've just drifted. And, you know, we're, maybe we're the kind of Christians who we're happy to say the heavens declare the glory of God. Maybe we even post that as an Instagram caption with our nice photos of, of that amazing sunset. But when it comes to listening to God's voice and obeying God's word and applying it to our lives, we have chosen to ignore that. And we have decided that, you know what, God isn't going to be the authority in my life, in every area of my life. And if that's you this morning, I want to call you back. I want to call you back to repentance, which just means changing your mind and changing your direction, turning around. Come back. Begin again. Elevate God's word to the place where it belongs. Listen to his voice. And you can do that this morning. I invite you to share with a trusted friend, maybe someone in your church at home group, maybe your whole GC if you feel comfortable. Maybe one of your leaders or any of the pastors, I'm sure, would be happy to talk to you. You know, in James chapter 5, James writes, Confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. And that's not this airy, fairy, symbolic, like, you know, you'll be spiritually symbolically healed. Like, no, he actually means when we confess our sins to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will tangibly experience healing. We will tangibly experience healing as we confess our sins. So I invite you, come back. Start again in the right direction. Start walking in those ways. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the fact that it reveals you, Lord, just like the heavens declare your beauty. We see you through your word this morning. But Lord, we don't want to be content as people who just look out at creation and see your glory. Lord, we want to be people who live by your word, 
who read it and listen to it and absorb it and who let it inform our lives, God. Help us, God. We know that it's so hard for us to do this. Thank you that even as we try to do this, Lord, you're not looking for our perfection, but you're looking for our surrender and our repentance. And so this morning, Lord, draw us to you that we might know you as our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for the abundant life that you offer us eternally, Lord, but also right now. Help us to be people who walk in that and experience that every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.